welcome to the Science in the City podcast, your gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm your host, Tamara Johnson. This podcast is the first in a special series sponsored by the Dana Foundation about Alzheimer's disease and some of the innovative approaches involved in the efforts to develop a treatment. This first installment is an excerpt from a recent event called Alzheimer's Disease Prospects for a Cure, organized by the Academy, along with the Society for Neuroscience, the Dana Foundation, the New York City Chapter of the Alzheimer's Association, and the organizers of New York City Brain Awareness Week. Alzheimer's is the sixth leading cause of death in the U.S., and there's new data suggesting that it's actually the number three cause of death for people over 75. Over 5 million individuals in the United States and 44 million worldwide are diagnosed with Alzheimer's. As the global population rises and ages, this is becoming an increasing concern. In the U.S., Alzheimer's affects 13% of people aged 65 or older and 40% of people 85 or older, and one in three seniors dies with some form of dementia. Alzheimer's is the only one of the top 10 causes of death in the U.S. that can't be prevented, slowed, or cured. We have four drugs prescribed to treat symptoms of Alzheimer's, but there are currently no disease-modifying therapies. In addition to the physical and emotional toll the disease exacts from Alzheimer's sufferers and their families, it's also a significant economic concern. In 2012, 15.4 million caregivers provided 17.5 billion hours of unpaid care, valued at $216 billion. Payments spent on health care, long-term care, and hospice were over $200 billion in 2013, and in the U.S. we expect that number to rise to over $1 trillion by 2050. However, we do have good reasons for optimism. There's increasing focus on Alzheimer's at national and international levels. In the United States, we have the National Alzheimer's Development Plan, which aims to achieve effective prevention and treatment of Alzheimer's disease by 2025. Is this goal realistic? The honest answer is, we still don't really know. As we'll be hearing, it's an enormous challenge, but the global community is coming at the problem with greater force than ever before. There's actually a lot that's still unknown, even about the basic biology of the disease. Most attempts to treat Alzheimer's so far have focused on beta amyloid, a protein that's thought to be a trigger for the disease. It aggregates and forms plaques in the brains of Alzheimer's-affected individuals. Another protein, tau, aggregates and forms tangles inside the neurons, which is thought to be another contributor to neurodegeneration. You'll be hearing more about beta amyloid and tau in the podcast. However, these proteins may not fully explain the disease, inflammation seems to be another factor, and Alzheimer's is just one of several related types of neurodegenerative disorders that cause dementia. Most elderly people with Alzheimer's also have other conditions, such as cardiovascular disease, that may impact brain health, and this makes it harder to identify Alzheimer's-specific causes and treatments to target them. This event brought together a distinguished panel of leading experts from different sectors of the research and drug development community to discuss ongoing efforts being made to translate basic research into treatments for Alzheimer's disease. On the panel, in the order in which you'll be hearing from them, are Dr. Richard Mayu, co-director of the Taub Institute for Research on Alzheimer's Disease and the Aging Brain at Columbia University Medical Center, Dr. Rachel Lane from the Alzheimer's Drug Discovery Foundation, Dr. Thomas McRae, Senior Director of Global Clinical Development and lead of the Clinical Sciences Group at Pfizer, and Dr. Christopher Ochner from the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. Dr. Mayo will describe the basic research being undertaken in academia. 
Dr. Lane will discuss the role of Foundation's money in supporting and accelerating the search for effective Alzheimer's interventions. Dr. McRae will explain the perspective of the pharmaceutical industry in drug development, and Dr. Ochner will talk about the value of diet and exercise in managing the risk of Alzheimer's disease. With that, here's Dr. Mayo. Universities don't make drugs. Uh, we actually do discovery work, and we hope that someday it will lead to a drug. Uh, and often we have these interactions with drug companies uh, after we've done a lot of sort of basic work. And that relationship has actually started to get a lot more interesting over the past few years, which uh, makes us all very happy. I'm going to tell a little bit about our center and what we're doing. Um, there's been all, already an enormous amount of money, federal money, poured into understanding the genetic basis of this disease and all its genetic influences. And I'm going to try to convince you why that's important. And then sort of end up how genetics then uh, leads to either developing a target for potential drug therapies or uh, biomarkers. So what do we know about the genetics of it? Uh, so this is one of those diseases that's very complicated. It's not a single, simple entity that you, know, you can make an easy diagnosis. And also, everybody gets to this stage of Alzheimer's disease in a much different way. So for example, there are long periods of time in which a patient may actually have the disease, but there are little or no symptoms. The other side of the coin is that the manifestation. So we can have people who have very mild forms of the disease. They don't really progress that much. They look, they're, they're very mildly impaired. And we can also have people who are completely disabled within about three years. So we know that there can be a lot of variability in what presents as Alzheimer's disease. And the one thing that everybody asks me is, that does it affect all ethnic groups? And so far, and that's been an interest of mine, so far every ethnic group that has a population that lives past 60 uh, shows evidence of the disease. So some of the countries where they reported very few cases of Alzheimer's disease, life expectancy is not that great. So therefore, you don't see that many cases. It's also genetically complex. The first kinds of families we started studying back in the 70s and 80s, these are families in which the disease in, is inherited in a dominant fashion. So one generation passes it on to the second generation, and then it keeps going. Uh, this is extraordinarily rare. It's less than 1% of all the cases of Alzheimer's disease, and the onset is usually in the 30s and 40s. In fact, I've seen people as young as t in their 20s with the disease, and I think the record is somebody developed a disease at age 18. Uh, but with interest in genomics, uh, and this is an, um, these families were important because they first pointed to the fact that amyloid deposition most of the mutations here affect amyloid processing. Um, these sort of led to the first development of therapies, which you'll hear about later today. But these aren't typical families. Um, in fact, uh, what we've seen more recently, uh, and I had the pleasure of putting together uh, a cohort of families uh, throughout the United States that are widely used in all of the genomic studies that are going on. I'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, these are families with typical Alzheimer's disease that starts in the 60s and 70s. And uh, we have about 1,600 of these families. Uh, if we count those from uh, other countries, it's about 2,000 families uh, that we've put together. We're actively following these families and their family members. 
Uh, we give the DNA to qualified investigators. We share the clinical information. But uh, we just decided to look at these people who were unaffected, don't have the disease or didn't have the disease at the time the pedigree was drawn. We wanted to know how rapidly do they change and how rapidly do they develop disease compared to the normal population. So in follow-up, we found that people who have a brother or sister uh, with Alzheimer's disease are three times more likely to convert to Alzheimer's disease than the normal population. If you look in certain populations, such as one study we're doing in the Dominican Republic, it's six times uh, the rate of conversion. Uh, so these, these families are also kind of unusual. There are only 2,000 throughout the United States that we've been able to identify. Uh, but what most physicians see are these kinds of cases, where this person shows up at the clinic, and they have Alzheimer's disease, and nobody, none of their previous generation reports having Alzheimer's disease. None of their siblings are affected. And they might say, well, I had an uncle that was on my mother's side that might have been affected. So we call these sporadic, but what we think is that these are genetic influences that just weren't detected in this generation. So we have a Mendelian form, which is dominantly inherited. We have sporadic and familial forms that are associated with common variants. And then we have these non-Mendelian familial forms that are associated with rare mutations. Now, what's, the, what's going on in the academic world? Columbia is one of about 30 institutions that have all started working together since 2000 to try to solve the genetic puzzle of Alzheimer's disease. So there's something called genome-wide association studies. The Alzheimer's Disease Genetic Consortium involves all of the Alzheimer's centers that are federally funded. Every single one of them have contributed DNA and clinical information. It also includes um, some epidemiological studies that are not actually in a center. And then this is a consortium of epidemiological studies that were originally put together to look at heart disease, but because the population was the same age, they were able to include information on cognitive uh, uh, studies. And then we have an international group. So these three groups got together with support from the Alzheimer's Association, uh, and they've uh, just conducted a very large study which was recently published and have identified 24 candidate genes that seem to increase the risk of Alzheimer's disease. So we now have to go back through each one of these genes, because now we know where to look, and sequence each one of those to see if we can find why that variation in that gene is associated with the Alzheimer's disease diagnosis. So that's going to take some time, but that process is underway as we speak. It's a good starting point. So if we can solve this, we can then partner with companies who are interested in developing targets for drug therapies because we can understand the mechanism by how these genes increase the risk. Now, here's our problem. So you hear a lot about mouse models. We take a gene, we put it in a mouse, and pretty much everything we do to that mouse, the mouse gets better. But it doesn't translate well into humans because humans are different than mice. I bet you all knew that. So we have to kind of be open-minded about what is driving Alzheimer's disease. So we have to start grouping these. So far, all 24 genes seem to fall into three groups. Those that are involved with lipids, those that are involved with trafficking or this uh, recycling process, and those that are involved in inflammation. So hopefully we can figure out how these genes work together uh, to solve that problem.
So what does it take from a university to do this? Well, we have to take everything because we really don't know where the clue is going to come from. So we take spinal fluid from our patients. We do proteomics. We try to identify peptides that are in the spinal fluid of both cases and controls. We do autopsy studies. We share this material. And there's over, since 2002, there's been a great deal of sharing across all of the centers, uh, all of the academic centers, and partners with industry to share this kind of information and work together. There have been linkage studies in families that are multiply affected, mutation analyses, and then the genotyping that I've described. So all of these factors have to get together, and then in a process called systems biology, they have to tie all these things together and figure out, well, if five or six of these genes work together, which one is really the driver? Which one is really deciding which effect? Or it could be that they all do in just different ways, and we have to solve that process. So what's planned? Well, you know, we already, we're going to hear about this later, but we're also looking at non-pharmacological interventions, uh, physical activities, mental activities, and also we're interested in distinguishing normal aging from MCI, or mild cognitive impairment, and the early manifestations of Alzheimer's disease. So how can we be sure, and we've because we have a large center, like many places, like in, in New York and in other cities, we see a fair number of people who present to us because they're forgetful, they, they think they have a problem, we examine them, and over time we see that they really don't change. Their memory really doesn't get any worse. And so we've started to be interested in this group of patients. In fact, some get better to try to figure out what's different about them from people who have MCI and gradually progress to Alzheimer's disease, because we have to distinguish those from those with early onset or early Alzheimer's disease changes uh, for clinical trials and for other clinical studies. The other area that uh, we're hoping to get into is looking at PET imaging. There's going to be a, uh, amyloid imaging I mentioned already. There's also tau imaging available uh, that will also be uh, interesting to uh, uh, study in the future. And then we try to collect DNA, spinal fluid, tissues of all sort for any patient that volunteers to let us do that. And we freely uh, give those materials uh, to qualified scientists to share. So the academic perspective is um, this is probably the renaissance period of Alzheimer's disease research. Main reason because the tools are better, there are a lot more academic uh, there's a lot more academic interaction than there ever has been. Uh, and we also are now starting to partner with uh, industry. There are at least uh, three uh, drug companies that are providing samples from clinical trials that they're doing into this genetic consortium uh, so that we can include those patients as well in genetic discovery. So I'll stop there. Now we'll be hearing from Dr. Rachel Lane about the role of foundations in helping to translate the research we just heard about into potential treatments. So the, the mission of the ADDF is to accelerate the discovery of new drugs to prevent and treat Alzheimer's disease and related dementias. So the National Institute of Aging, which is the um, center of the National Institute of Health that focuses on funding um, Alzheimer's disease programs, together with the Alzheimer's Association, the major public um, advocacy foundation for Alzheimer's disease, put together a database to basically do an analysis of how all the different funders within the Alzheimer's disease space are spending their money. So as we can see from this analysis, 
Uh, the ADDF provides 100% of its funding to funding drug discovery or translational research and clinical interventions and for the development of biomarkers, which I'm going to talk about um, a bit more today. And this database is incredibly useful for the field, so we can go in and have a look and do an analysis to see what the other funders are funding and to make sure we're not crossing over in our funding. And if we are, we're collaborating together so we can each leverage our funding to support these projects. So we start off um, in the very early stages of drug discovery. So we take um, a discovery from an academic lab that's trying to understand the causes or the underlying pathology of the disease. So we can take a team then of biologists and chemists to basically screen a lot of molecules, like tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of molecules against a specific biologic target. So then as we go through the drug discovery process, we start to narrow down those number of chemical compounds and we do that by optimizing them. So we're improving them for how they distribute within the body, how they're metabolized and broken down by the body, and for their safety and toxicity as well. So we get to kind of a preclinical stage of drug discovery. So at this point, we've refined down our compound numbers so we know how they behave, potentially to predict how they behave in humans, and we'll test them in animal models of the disease. So then when we finally have some sign that this could be effective, and we need better ways of knowing how to predict how the drugs in animal models will translate into the clinic. So we go to the, the, the FDA and ask for an investigational new drug application. So this will basically provide a package of information to show that the drug has rationale for working within the disease and that it's safe and it's effective. So then we move into phase clinical trials. So phase one, we're testing for safety primarily in a healthy population in small numbers of patients. We then go to phase two and to phase three, and this is testing in increasingly larger populations of patients for safety and for efficacy. And then finally, when we're confident that it's safe and it does have um, efficacy within the patient population, so within Alzheimer's disease patients, we go to the FDA and submit a new drug application, which will then take it forward into the clinic. Unfortunately, at the minute, we don't have any disease-modifying drugs on the market for Alzheimer's disease. So this process takes a long time and requires a significant amount of funding. So at the Alzheimer's Drug Discovery Foundation, we're providing funding to this early stage translational development and clinical trials to support and accelerate the development of drugs into later stage clinical trials. And there's a significant gap in the field right now for funding for this area. So this is where ADDF funding comes in. And to take a drug from the discovery stages to FDA approval takes about 12 to 15 years and about um, $1.4 billion. So to make this happen, we need multidisciplinary teams of scientists with very diverse areas of expertise. So we have our basic biologists that work on identifying a biological target that we can target with a drug to hopefully um, improve the condition and prevent progression of the disease. We then need people that are experts in developing screens to screen large numbers of compounds against this biological pathway or target. And we need computational scientists and basic biologists and chemists for us to be able to do this. So this is going through what we call high-throughput screening, structure-based chemistry, to kind of help us define the molecules that we're going to pick to go forward in the drug discovery process. So then we need medicinal chemists, pharmacologists, and toxicologists, so that we know how the drug is going to behave within the body and that it's safe. So then we need um, to go test those in animal models of the disease. Now, we've had a problem within the Alzheimer's field where our animal models of the disease don't well predict how a molecule is going to behave within humans and within in Alzheimer's disease patients. 
So we need to improve this area of research. So we need what we call animal trialists, so that we know that those preclinical studies are designed in exactly the same way that it would be designed for a clinical trial. And for us to be able to do that, we also need what we call biomarkers. And I'm going to talk a bit more about that in a second. And this will help us predict better which molecules that are effective in animal models will go forward and be effective in humans. And as Richard said earlier, you know, mice don't predict what happens in the human condition. And we've cured mice 400, 500 times, but yet that hasn't translated into the clinic. So then we need pharmaceutical scientists, and we need people that are experts in developing drugs. So manufacturing drugs in large scale that are safe and that um, are free from impurities. And these go through what we call IND enabling studies, which is safety and toxicity. And these are very expensive studies to do. Um, and then we need clinical trialists to go forward and test these within the clinic. So one way that the ADDF is trying to accelerate this process, in addition to providing funding for these studies, is trying to bring together these networks of people. As a foundation, we're very well centered in the field to be able to do this. So we launched a program last year called the ADDF Access Program, and it provides a web platform that we're building up to provide these pharmaceutical development expertise and making them more widely available to academic scientists and to biotechnology companies that are increasingly being involved in drug discovery. As we see pharmaceutical companies kind of having this push more towards academic drug discovery, they need to find this expertise that would traditionally have only been found in pharma. So we're trying to bring that together and make that available for the research community. So then the first part I'm going to talk about is how we're accelerating drug development at the minute is through the development of biomarkers. So what is a biomarker? A biomarker or a biological marker refers to a measured characteristic which may be used as an indicator of a biological state or disease. So this could be a component of a bodily fluid, such as cerebral spinal fluid, or a component of plasma, which would be the holy grail for Alzheimer's disease at the minute. Or it could be imaging modality. So this could detect um, some of that pathology we heard about, amyloid plaques or tau within the brain of patients. Um, or it could detect a functional change in how neurons are connecting or the function of the brain. So why do we need them? So 51% of clinical trials right now fail because of efficacy. But why is this? It could be the wrong disease target, the wrong patient population, or the wrong dose of the drug. Now, the wrong patient population has been a huge issue recently with some clinical trials that failed within the last couple of years because we can't well define our patient population for those that have Alzheimer's disease and those that might have related dementias. So one of the ways we've been trying to accelerate biomarker development is funding biomarker development programs. So in 2000, the ADDF provided some seed funding to an investigator at UPenn for the development of a marker of amyloid within the brain. In 2004, we helped them spin this out into a company called Avid Radio Pharmaceuticals. And in 2010, Eli Lilly actually bought Avid Radio Pharmaceuticals for about $800 million. In 2012, the FDA approved Amavid or AV45, which is a marker of these A-beta plaques within the brain, as a diagnostic marker for Alzheimer's disease. And this was the first FDA-approved diagnostic marker for Alzheimer's disease available. And so why this, this is important? So in some of these, these um, clinical trials that have failed recently, up to about 25% of those patients don't actually have amyloid in their brain. And we didn't have a good way of detecting this before. And this is really important. If we're going to go in with an amyloid-removing therapy, we need to know that the patients have amyloid in the first instance. And it can also help us predict which patients are going to advance to dementia and to Alzheimer's disease. So in mild cognitive impairment, which is that stage before Alzheimer's disease, 
50% of the patients will improve or stay the same, and 50% of the patients may advance to dementia and Alzheimer's disease. So amyloid imaging now is a very good way to predict which patients will advance to Alzheimer's disease because they are amyloid within their brain. So we can now detect through this biomarker or imaging modality. And now the same company is also going on to develop um, traces for tau as well, one of those other pathologies within the disease. So how are we using biomarkers to accelerate clinical trials? The clinical trials are very expensive. They take a long time. And we need a way to speed that up to get a signal to kind of increase enthusiasm and, um, for the testing drugs within this field. So clinical trials have predefined endpoints. So in uh, phase one we heard about, this is to test for safety of a drug. Um, so safety would be your primary outcome for that. So if you go into phase two, into phase three, biomarkers can be used um, to detect a response to treatment within a very short period of time. And then for largest phase twos or phase threes, we would usually look at a cognitive outcome, which takes a large number of patients. And it takes a very long time to treat to be able to see that signal. So typically, biomarkers can allow for smaller patient populations. It can allow us to select patients for that trial that are most likely to respond to that type of treatment. It can also reduce the number of patients and the length of the trial. And it can decrease the cost significantly, which opens up a door for foundations like the ADDF to be able to support some of these studies. An example that we have funded in the last couple of years is a phase 2A study of a drug called mitoglitazone, or MSD0160, in mild to moderate AD patients. So mitoglitazone was actually developed as a diabetes drug. And so I'm going to highlight this as an, a, an example of repositioning or repurposing. And so the primary endpoint for this trial was what we call FDG-PET signal. So FDG-PET is an imaging modality, so an imaging method that we can use in the brain that detects um, the amount of glucose that is taken up by nerve cells. And glucose is the primary energy source for nerves in the brain. And so we, there's evidence in the field that FGG signal is actually decreased in mild to moderate AD patients. So we were pretty confident with a drug that targets this mechanism of action that we might see a change in FGG PET signal following treatment. And as I said, this is a, an example of repositional repurposing. And I'm going to come back to this concept in just one minute. So in a phase 2A study of mitoglycosone, and this is... Um, N equals 13, so this means we had 13 patients in each arm of the trial, which is a very small trial, and it was for three months. So in the top, the top lane, we can see um, an example scan of patients that were not treated, so they were given a placebo within the trial. And three months from the beginning of the trial, we can see a significant decrease in uptake of FGG-PET, which is measured by this blue signal within the brain. So we're seeing decreased utilization of glucose by neurons, which would correlate with a decreased function. Then in the treated arm, so three months we've treated with mitoglycosone, um, N equals 16, so 16 patients in this, we see less decline in glucose uptake by neuronal cells. So this would um, hint at an improvement in neuronal function by the effect of this drug. So this has now provided us with confidence to go into a larger phase 2B study, which would be significantly more expensive to go and see if we can measure an outcome against Cognitive function. So rediscovery or repurposing, as I mentioned. So this is essentially um, finding new tricks for old drugs. And there's many examples of this within um, in pharmaceutical landscapes. So we basically, you know, we need to accelerate clinical development timelines. And there's a lot of rationale for different drugs that are already available on the market that they might work in Alzheimer's disease patients. And we can look at um, different 
what we know about the disease and how it progresses to kind of predict which drugs might work in certain patient populations. Um, so we can learn from risk factors from AD. So the example I just showed you was for a diabetes drug, which is still in development, um, and also from hypertension. And we're funding some phase 2A studies with various hypertension agents right now in Alzheimer's disease patients as well. So there are new drugs on the rise, and then there are many clinical trials ongoing at the minute, and we're supporting a number of these um, through taking this approach of small phase twos with a biomarker as the endpoint to try and encourage um, larger development partners, such as pharmaceutical partners or investors, to really invest in these really expensive phase three trials. Um, so at the minute, we have several approaches going on. So, and some of these might surprise you as to their rationale for using Alzheimer's disease patients. So we have Rilazole, which was FDA approved for ALS, which is another neurodegenerative disease. Atomoxetine is um, a drug that was approved for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Um, and actually, this targets a, a neurotransmitter in the brain that seems to be decreased in Alzheimer's disease patients. Liraglutide was developed, another diabetes drug was developed, um, and we're testing that in a phase 2A study at Imperial College London at the minute. Uh, angiotensin receptor blockers, these are antihypertensives. Um, we're testing this in the study that's ongoing in Toronto, a mitoglycosone that I just talked about, which was a diabetes drug. Um, so novel drugs and treatments we're also currently developing. Um, allopregnanolone is just going into phase one at the minute at UC Irvine, and this is a progesterone um, metabolite and targets some of those neurotransmitters in the brain that seem to be dysfunctional within the disease. Um, PBT2, this was in the news recently for some positive signal in a phase two for Huntington's disease. And there's been some evidence for this that it's going to work in Alzheimer's disease as well. Um, what we call NGF mimetics. So this is a company actually that we funded from the very early stages in an academic lab, helped them spin out the company, and now they're going into a phase 1B study. So it's really nice to see a drug that was supported when it was at the bench and in the lab, and now it's going into the clinic. And intranasal insulin, which has been in the news a lot recently and had a lot of NIA funding, we funded the initial trial of intranasal insulin. And again, this is targeting um, this decreased glucose uptake by neurons in the cell and loss of function. So I'm going to stop there. Um, if you want more information, it's available on our website. It's www.oldsdiscovery.org. Next up is Dr. Thomas McRae, who will share his perspective from the pharmaceutical industry. So what I'm going to be sharing with you actually shows the, uh, the sort of synergy across academia, private foundations, and the pharmaceutical industry, and how we all have to be working together to be able to conquer this disease. So to begin with, when a pharmaceutical company looks at trying to develop a drug, the first thing they ask is, well, what is the unmet medical need? Um, why is, you know, what is the disease that's out there that needs to be treated? And in Alzheimer's disease, we've already heard about the, the staggering numbers that are going to sort of overwhelm not only Western societies, but even the developing world as, as we head into the middle of this century. Once you've identified a disease that's an unmet medical need, the next thing you have to do is have a target for your medicine to treat. And as I think you've probably guessed from what we've heard from both of our previous speakers, Alzheimer's disease presents a wide array of targets. And in some ways, that's part of the problem, because maybe so far we haven't been successful because we haven't actually been trying for the right target. 
But Alzheimer's disease is also an example of where targeting has been successful. So back in the 1970s and 1980s, one of the first things that we learned about Alzheimer's disease is that a, a chemical transmitter in the brain called acetylcholine was deficient. And the disease seemed to particularly affect a region in the brain called the nucleus basalis of Minert. And when cells in that region were lost, the chemical acetylcholine was lost, and the ability of the, the brain to communicate, particularly in areas related to memory, was diminished. And so trying to increase brain acetylcholine was one of the first targets that uh, researchers undertook in trying to treat this disease. And what came to pass was the discovery of compounds that could block the enzyme that normally breaks down acetylcholine, therefore there was more around. So the first of these was Cognex. It came out in the early 90s, and that was actually initially an academic uh, research exercise. And it was also an example of, of repurposing an old drug, um, because it had actually, uh, its generic name was Tacrin, and it had been discovered in, in the 1940s and for a while had been used um, in relation to surgical anesthesia. Um, the problem with Tacrin was that uh, it caused uh, liver damage in a lot of people who took it. And so subsequent to that, the drug that I worked on for 12 years, Aricept, was discovered and came to market. And then there were two additional cholinesterase inhibitors, um, rivastigmine and uh, Reminil, that came to market. So four of the five drugs currently on the market to treat the symptoms of the disease um, were actually the result of finding a target and actually correctly hitting that target. But as I've said, the disease is much more complex. And unfortunately, um, increasing acetylcholine helps patients symptomatically for a period of time. But it clearly doesn't cure the disease. And what its long-term effects now are, are, are still of, of some debate. It may actually slow the progression of the disease somewhat um, in people who take it over time. But nonetheless, uh, it's the best we've got for right now. So once you've defined an unmet medical need, you've decided on what your target is, and you have compounds that affect that target, you have to see if the drug is actually safe for people to take. Because we've already heard that it's been tested in animals, but that doesn't always translate into how a drug is going to affect people. So the phase one study is the first use in a human being. And these are usually normal, young, healthy volunteers, generally college students looking to make a little extra money, who are willing to come into a research unit and to actually take the drug and to be monitored very carefully in all sorts of different ways to see what the drug does when it's in their system. If that goes well, and there aren't any major adverse consequences to taking the drug, uh, we then move into what's known as the phase two study, which is where the drug is first given to people who actually have the disease that you're trying to treat. And here again, the focus is safety. Because you've given it to young, healthy people, perhaps when you give it to somebody who has an illness, or particularly, like in the case of Alzheimer's disease, if you're now giving it to elderly people, um, maybe that drug is not going to be safe in that population. Um, you also want to know, is there any evidence that the drug actually works on the disease? 
So this is the phase of clinical trials where what is known as proof of concept occurs. And, and that's what gives you the confidence to take the drug into a much larger population of patients with the disease to see if it actually works. And so that's what we call the phase three study, where you've got people who have your disease and you're really trying to find out if the drug works. Well, how do you do that? You have to compare it to something else. So you either compare it to a placebo, which is an inactive pill or injection, or in the case of drugs for which there are already treatments, you, have, you can compare it to an active drug. So that there, what you're trying to find out is your new drug better than the treatments that already exist. And then finally, there are what are known as phase four studies of the drug. And these are the studies that are done once the drug has received its first approval from uh, a regulatory agency like the FDA or the European Medicines Agency. And these are studies that are generally done to try to treat a broader population. Um, sometimes people with more uh, what we call comorbid illnesses. Because to be in phase three trials, um, people are generally healthy other than the target disease. So you may be looking at, a, at a, uh, an older or younger population that you're treating, or what we call a more real-world population. So that is a little primer on clinical trials. You know, there are project teams that start out in exploratory development once this idea has happened. Um, compounds then have to be synthesized. Uh, they get screened in a whole variety of ways. And one of the advances in drug development in, in recent years is what's known as in silico screening. So you can actually model compounds on the computer and test them as to whether or not they will uh, fit with various disease targets and not even have to go through uh, basic laboratory testing. But then they um, get studied in animals and uh, you learn about how the pharmacology of the drug works and whether they've got any serious uh, toxicology, meaning uh, poisonous or toxic actions. Those safety studies allow you to have the confidence to formulate the drug in a larger fashion. And one of the things that people don't realize is that you could, in fact, have a drug that seems like it's uh, going to work, but then when you try to synthesize it and formulate it into a pill, it turns out to be very difficult to do. The chemistry just won't work in order to allow you to make large quantities that are necessary to be able to treat large numbers of people with the disease. So things can fail at that stage of development when you're trying to go from something you synthesized in the lab to something that you're going to need to manufacture. And then go into the much larger phase three. You analyze all the data. You put it together in this very big registration package. And then the regulators look at it and decide um, whether or not they're going to approve it. Now, um, another point that I like to make to people is that the amount of data that gets submitted to regulators is massive. We are talking about easily tens of thousands of pages of results that these regulators have to review. Um, and they're looking at everything very carefully, the quality of your data, the safety that you've demonstrated, as well as the evidence that the drug actually works. And then they evaluate it. Sometimes they put it before what's known as an advisory committee, a committee of experts, um, to see if there's agreement that the benefit from the drug outweighs any risks that might accompany the drug.
because we all know that all medicines, even simple things like aspirin, can carry risks. And so sometimes, particularly when you're dealing with very severe or life-threatening diseases, you have to accept a certain amount of, of adverse events or safety risks if the benefit is really worth it. I just want to drive home the point that uh, this process is very difficult, it's full of risk, and most drugs do not become medicines. And there are all sorts of reasons for this. Uh, because disease targets are complex, you may not be hitting the right one. Sometimes the drug will stay too long in the body and cause uh, unwanted uh, adverse reactions because of that. Sometimes it's not absorbed well from the stomach or the intestines, and so it can't, you can't get enough into a person for it to be helpful, and you end up with low levels in the body. Sometimes you could be hitting the right target, but maybe it, hitting that target just isn't enough in seeing um, effectiveness, and that's what people would say about the cholinesterase inhibitors. They're, they're effective, they do what they're supposed to do, but they're not effective enough in the long term. Um, they may not be sufficiently selective, so um, they may hit your target, but they may hit other targets in the body and therefore generate um, adverse events or, or other unpredictable side effects, and that can lead them to, to them being safe. Um, they can also be unstable. They may not have a very long shelf life, so you might have figured out how to um, manufacture a large amount of the drug, but if it's going to deteriorate and become inactive in the space of a couple of months, that's not a very marketable product. Um, so that could be another issue. You start out here with a lot of different approaches, millions of compounds get screened, and as they go through each of these stages in the development process, you only end up with one or two products at the end. And this takes 11 to 15 years, if you're lucky, um, and usually costs, as she said, about a billion dollars. And so all of this translates into this idea um, that if you've got a long development time and very low success rates, what you're ending up with is high research and development costs. So why else is drug development expensive? Well, nowadays, you generally need to have more clinical trials um, per new drug application. Um, it's, it's a greater emphasis on, on seeing both safety and efficacy. So you need to have larger populations of patients um, to be able to demonstrate that. Um, and one way of doing that is putting more patients into the clinical trials. You also end up doing more procedures per, for patients. And then finally, it, there's just the cost of the technology. These scans, MRIs, PET scans, um, range anywhere from $1,000 to $3,000 or $4,000 per scan. So if you think the, about what it means if you're doing, you know, 10 MRIs on, uh, you know, something like 1,500 patients, the, the costs add up very, very quickly. Um, as an industry, pharma is, is investing more and more in the cost of drug development, but the success rate, the number of new drugs approved, is, is not keeping up with that expense. Um, and that's very frustrating to all of us involved. However, I want to kind of leave on, on something of a message of, uh, of hope. There are tremendous numbers of compounds that are still being tested and a very, very wide range of targets that are being looked at 
and tested. And so I do believe that there is still hope for a cure. The New York Academy of Sciences is, is um, encouraging an initiative to get everyone to focus on this, and we're looking at, at 2025 um, as a goal. So um, it may still well be within my working life. I hope so. <laughs> um, and the reasons for hope are just this. The unmet medical need continues to grow, um, as do the potential benefits to society from discovering an effective treatment for this disease. And even when our trials fail, we learn things. So our knowledge continues to grow, and that's very, very important. And there are treatments that are on the market. You know, you have to take away the message that there are things we can do, both pharmaceutically and um, with non-pharmaceutical treatments, to try to um, improve the lives of people who currently have Alzheimer's disease. And then finally, the message is we're not giving up. Industry's not giving up, academia's not giving up, and increasingly we're working more and more together. So I think at the end of the day, we don't know when that future horizon is going to be, but I'm still hopeful that we will find a cure. Finally, here's Dr. Ochner of the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. Dr. Ochner is the co-author of a book called The Alzheimer's Diet on how we might be able to take some power into our own hands through a healthy diet and exercise while we await a treatment for Alzheimer's disease. So while all this amazing work is going on that is pushing us towards a cure, what can we do in the meantime aside from currently approved medications? And everything I'm going to talk to you about is basically what does the evidence say? What does the scientific evidence say about nutrition and Alzheimer's? Okay, and so as of now, what we're really talking about is risk reduction, okay? Are there things that we can do that can reduce the risk? It's never going to get down to zero, but can we reduce that risk? Um, and treatment, we're not talking about cure, where you get an infection, you go, you get some antibiotics, it's cured. Um, that, again, is what we are pushing towards. Right now, we are just looking to, can we reduce the severity or delay the progression? of the disease, and if we can do either of those, we consider that a win at this point, okay? Looking at a quick PubMed search, that's where we get all our scientific articles from. How many articles had diet and Alzheimer's in the title? Back in the 90s, there were zero, okay? I mean, we just weren't thinking about nutrition for Alzheimer's disease. Um, and as of the very beginning of last year, it's really this exponential growth, okay? And we expect that to continue. These studies are, though there's a lot of them, they vary greatly in the methodology and the outcome measures used and the uh, diets, and so it becomes a little bit difficult to compare them. Uh, and so that was a little bit of the trick of sort of wading through everything and picking out what really uh, has evidence behind it. Um, this is not something that is uh, a global recovery mechanism, okay? So you're not gonna get back the loved one that you knew 10 years ago by eating more berries, okay? We are, depending upon the outcome measures in some of these studies, you're gonna see some improvement in some cognitive measures and no improvement in others. Uh, and it's really sort of variable as we go across. So it's just good to bear in mind um, that, you know, this is not a, a big, huge, whopping thing. Um, it is one component of what should be a multifaceted approach. Um, and the therapy effects sort of uh, come with another bonus. I mean, basically what's good for the brain is also good for the heart and good for the body and vice versa, okay? So it's not just your standard, like eat more fruits and vegetables types thing. It is, uh, we have, we're a little bit more sophisticated than that, but um, there are uh, other benefits to it that um, 
essentially a good brain diet is a good heart diet, okay? We're seeing in a lot of these trials effect sizes as large or larger than current FDA-approved medications, okay? And I mean, I should say that it's probably more of a consequence of the state of the field in that we just don't have anything right now that produces whopping effect sizes. I mean, that's really all why we're all here, right? Um, is to improve on that. But in the meantime, okay, nutrition is, we think, vitally important. Um, of currently available diets that most people recognize, I'm going to talk about what is potentially maximally brain healthy after this, but of current diets that are out there, we would probably recommend the Mediterranean diet. There's probably the most empirical evidence backing this up. We do see neuroprotective effects, okay, so we see risk reduction, um, and there also was some recovery in cognitive functioning uh, in uh, individuals that already have Alzheimer's. However, if we were going to construct from scratch the optimal diet, okay, probably the first and foremost thing that we would do is reduce carbohydrates. We're not talking about a low, a very low carbohydrate. We're not talking about the Atkins or a ketogenic diet, okay? That's probably too far. We're talking maybe 75 to 100 grams of carbohydrates per day. So a low, but not a very low carbohydrate diet. The second thing is uh, low saturated fat, okay? And there may be some, there's usually somebody in the audience that goes, well, uh, there's all this new evidence showing that um, naturally occurring saturated fats are actually good, and it's the processed stuff that's bad, and it's, uh, um, the jury is still way out on that. Uh, and practically speaking, most of the saturated fats that you are going to run into are going to be the processed saturated fats that are pretty much definitely bad. Um, and very few people have the time or know how to sort of microscopically dissect what are the naturally occurring from the process. So, and by and large, we recommend limiting saturated fats to about 7%. Okay. Um, low glycemic. Um, it basically has to do with the amount of sugar, I'm going to oversimplify it, but the amount of sugar that you're going to put in your body. And what happens to that, right? I mean, it's, it's glucose coming into your body, and it actually needs, your body needs to get it out, otherwise it's going to cause a whole bunch of bad stuff, okay? and particularly in the brain. Not just in the brain, but particularly in the brain. Um, and so we get insulin, our body produces insulin that essentially, again, oversimplified, but ushers that glucose out before it can wreak havoc. Um, so when we get a big spike of glucose, we eat something high carbohydrate or high glycemic, right? The sugary and the white breads, the white pastas, the rice, stuff like that. We get this rapid spike in insulin to be able to deal with it. Okay, and then afterwards, you get that crash. And then we need to feed it more because we're crashed. So we get a spike again, and it crashes, and it spikes, and it crashes. And what happens is your body loses its ability to be able to regulate its insulin response. Okay, and that occurs not only in the body, and you're familiar with that because down the road comes diabetes, but we also basically get insulin resistance or our insulin response in the brain becomes disruptive eventually. And that's why if you ever hear some people refer to Alzheimer's as uh, diabetes type three, I mean, we don't really fully, that, that doesn't fully account for what's going on, but it certainly is a factor. So um, next thing, there are certain vitamins, minerals, um, vitamins B6, B12, and D, these do have empirical, there have been studies done and there is evidence of neuroprotective effects. Antioxidants, we think that is also another mechanism of action for uh, a lot of the diet, uh, the dietary interventions. And also the omega-3 fatty acids, that's the big thing behind, uh, presumably behind the Mediterranean diet. Right? Second to last, there's some additional supplementation, okay? Coffee, 
particularly caffeinated coffee, and it's really interesting. They've done these studies. Now, there is a neuroprotective effect of caffeine alone, and there is also a neuroprotective effect of uh, uh, coffee beans alone, right? But when you put them together, it's not quite a synergistic, but it is very least an additive effect, okay? And these are neuroprotective effects, but the thing is, when you're talking about caffeinated coffee, particularly for patients and loved ones, we want to preserve the sleep cycle, right? So looking at two to three cups in the morning, preferably, and try to limit caffeine intake uh, later on in the afternoon. Um, cocoa, dark cocoa powder specifically. Uh, and every time we've ever said this, everybody goes, oh, yes, I knew it. Dark chocolate is the key to everything. Um, no, it doesn't mean go home and eat gobs of dark chocolate because you're also going to be getting tons of sugar and saturated fat and all of the things that are probably going to override the benefit that you would have gotten. They do sell dark cocoa powder, and there have been studies done, again, with neuroprotective effects. Um, and berries, okay, berries, and we think it's probably the antioxidant properties, but um, berries. There was a study done a few years back where Half a cup of berries, not that much, half a cup of berries three times a week delayed the onset of Alzheimer's by an average of two years. Okay, I mean, that's huge when you think about that. Um, from eating some berries. And timing. Timing is actually also important, okay? I use the reference of like a furnace, right? Your body and your brain is a furnace and it needs fuel to continue burning and you want it to burn steady and true. Okay, you really don't want these spikes, just like what I was just talking about, these spikes of uh, glucose resulting in spikes in insulin, crash and spikes and crash, it's bad stuff. Um, so it's sort of like, uh, think about heating your house with a furnace, right? Um, high glycemic stuff, high carbohydrate, high sugar stuff, that's like feeding your fire with kindling, okay? Or newspaper, you're gonna eat this bluster, your flame's gonna flare up and then it's gonna go out and you're gonna have to feed it again. It's not a good way to go about it and your brain doesn't like that. Okay, um, the better thing to do, right, your low glycemic stuff, your low carb um, foods, and your, your sort of uh, more complex, if you're going to go for carbohydrates, your fruits and vegetables are more complex carbohydrates that are also gonna have some other nutrients. Those are gonna burn much longer, steadier, and truer, okay? Um, and then 12 to 14 hour fasting is an interesting thing. So it's just, and if you think about it, it sounds like a low wow, it's a really long time to go without eating. It's really not that much, okay? I mean, if you eat dinner at whatever, 6, 7 p.m., um, and don't have a midnight snack, then you are actually getting the benefit of this, what happens over the night. The body goes in when it doesn't get glucose for that period of time, and it's really usually the minimum. There's like a threshold, about 12 hours. Um, you go into a mild ketogenic state, so you start producing what's called ketone bodies, okay? And this is the only other viable fuel source for the brain. The, body can, uh, the brain can burn glucose, which actually winds up uh, causing some damage, some oxida oxidative uh, damage that we think contributes to the onset of Alzheimer's. Um, and it appears as though ketone bodies may not just be an alternate fuel source, um, but it may essentially be a cleaner burning fuel. We don't know yet, but um, there are, again, neuroprotective effects. Um, exercise for the brain. Exercise comes in a couple different forms. There's physical exercise. Is physical exercise good for the brain? Yes, absolutely yes. Probably even more so than mental exercise. And this is the question. Hey, should I be doing Sudoku? Should I be doing whatever? Um, the jury is still out. The answer is it's probably not going to 
hurt you, but there's a lot of mixed evidence. Um, the only thing that we can say for sure is doing a lot of Sudoku will make you better at Sudoku. <laughs> Beyond that, we're really not sure. Um, and social exercise, okay, this is sort of a new thing. Um, but there is evidence, and this is it's sort of a new evidence, um, and at this point it's correlational, but there is, there's some epidemiological evidence to suggest um, that being more socially active and socially engaged, um, there was actually a Facebook study um, that has a positive result, okay, so that has neuroprotective effects and even will help people regain some memory function, okay, and we don't know if this is a proxy, I mean, what's really the mechanism here, if in fact there is a causal relationship, which we don't 100% know yet, but um, if there was, is this just a proxy? Is this because isolated people are more likely to be depressed and the depression may continue, uh, contribute to cognitive decline? I, I, we don't know, but whatever it is, right, we want our loved ones to stay more socially engaged. The theme in all of these is that these are low-risk interventions, right? There's almost no downside to doing these. So uh, that's why we think it's a particularly good idea in the meantime where we just don't have a lot yet, unfortunately. Um, so the take-home points are what's good for the heart is good for the brain and vice versa. Um, so we do, we get people going on uh, a brain-healthy diet that will write back and say, I lost weight and I went better, my, my blood pressure is lower and so on and so forth, and that's all well and good. That's not our main goal, but it is usually actually a pretty good side effect. Notwithstanding the issues of sticking to a diet, diets are hard to stick to, we've all heard that before. Um, this one being no exception, but again, it's something, the conception is that something is better than nothing. The more you do, the more benefit you are likely to see, um, but doing something, and it's the same way with exercise, everything's additive. Every little bit you do helps, it counts. You don't, it doesn't have to be and shouldn't be an all or nothing thing. Um, alone is not enough, I mentioned in the beginning. Certainly not to say, you know, go out and eat more berries and you're good to go, okay? I mean, it's just, it should be one component of a multimodal approach. And it's sort of like a war on Alzheimer's. You don't want to just bring the ground troops. You need the army, you need the air force, you need the navy, you need everything you've got, right? With deference to a risk-benefit ratio, okay? I mean, you don't just want to throw everything at it. If there are going to be side effects, and those need to be considered, but everything that carries low risk, we think, um, by we actually just mean myself and my co-author, others may disagree, but um, if there's low risk that may carry potential for benefit, why not? That's it for this Science in the City podcast. We'd like to thank the Greater New York Chapter of the Society for Neuroscience, the Dana Foundation, the New York City Chapter of the Alzheimer's Association, and the organizers of the New York City Brain Awareness Week for their co-sponsorship of this panel, and the Dana Foundation for their generous support of this podcast series. Stay tuned for upcoming installments. For more science, check out scienceinthecity.org and nyas.org addi, the webpage for the Academy's Alzheimer's Disease and Dementia Initiative. You can also follow us on social media. We're Sci and the City on Twitter, and Science and the City on Facebook. Follow at N-Y-A-S-A-L-Z on Twitter for more news from the Alzheimer's Disease and Dementia Initiative. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.